Thank you to all our regular podcast listeners. It's our pleasure and honor to make the show for you. Knowing that you like our podcast makes all the difference to us. Please follow the show in your favorite podcast app or find the latest episode every Wednesday at remarkablepeople.com. My name is Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. Today's remarkable guest is Gabrielle Blair. My wife told me to get Gabby on this podcast after she read an article about Gabby in USA Today. It was called Mormon Mom of Six Writes Viral Twitter Thread Focusing on Male Responsibility in Pregnancy. The viral thread started with this tweet on September 13th, 2018 at 3 p.m. Quote, I am a mother of six and a Mormon. I have a good understanding of arguments surrounding abortion, religious and otherwise. I've been listening to men grandstand about women's reproductive rights, and I'm convinced men actually have zero interest in stopping abortion. Here's why. This tweet, as the saying goes, broke the internet. Millions of people read it, retweeted it, quoted it, and liked it. Gabby and I go way back. So far back that content websites were an innovative idea. In addition to breaking the internet with her discussion of abortion, she is the founder and CEO of Alt Summit, a very successful social media conference. She is also the driving force behind the blog Design Mom. This hosts interesting parenting discussions. It was once named Website of the Year by Time Magazine. Gabby is also the author of the New York Times bestselling book Design Mom. How to Live with Kids, a Room-by-Room Guide. Her new book, with just the greatest title, is called, are you ready for this? Ejaculate Responsibly, A Whole New Way to Think About Abortion. With no further ado, I'm Guy Kawasaki, this is Remarkable People, and now, here's the remarkable Gabby Blair. few months ago, my wife one day texts me and says, you should get this woman on your podcast. And I look at it and it's Gabby Blair. And I said, that sounds familiar. <laughs> so I go in and I say, that woman was at our house. She co-hosted a party at our house. I know her. Here, this most viral woman about men's responsibility towards ejaculation is a BFF from the past and from curtsy days. So there you go. Those were the days. Yes, those were the days. Oh my gosh, it feels, yeah, a whole different time. (laughs) Did you ever hear the story of one of your many guests at the party that at the end of the party, she was at the end of my driveway and she was too lazy to walk back to take a pee. So she peed in my bushes and then she posted that I peed in Guy Kawasaki's bushes. Guy, I am so embarrassed. I had no, I have no memory of that, but I can imagine it happening. (laughs) (laughs) Who knew the mom bloggers were the partiers? (laughs) I am just totally fascinated with this transition you made from social media mom and goddess to reproductive issues. So how did you do that? 
You're so kind to remember me from the good old days. The, the reality is I've been posting on Design Mom for all these years and posting everything that came to my mind. I talked about it. I called the subtitle of the blog was always the intersection of design and motherhood. But I realized pretty quickly that allowed me to talk about anything, pretty much <laughs> whatever. You can fit anything under design or parenthood. And so I allowed me to talk about current events and political issues, allowed me to talk about cool products I was finding. And I really took advantage of that and had a lot of fun. So in some ways, this is a total shift. I'm doing so much more writing than I did in the early days where it was much more about design. But in other ways, I've always been talking about controversial topics. And people that have read me, my readers that have stuck with me, they knew that. And so they weren't super surprised by this. But the biggest shift was I wasn't really using Twitter for writing. I'd only used Twitter just to promote social media stuff, as we'd been kind of taught way back in the beginning. During the run-up to the 2016 election, when people were using Twitter more, I got on Twitter and started using it as a, I was doing more reading there and wasn't producing anything, but I was reading more. And I really got into this idea of Twitter threads. I really liked the format. And I had written up some thoughts about abortion, about men's responsibility, about unwanted pregnancies. And I wasn't quite sure where I wanted to put them. I was like, do I do a blog essay? Do I put it on Facebook? I just wasn't sure. And then I sat on it for a few months. And then it was the hearings for Justice Kavanaugh. And I just got a bee in my bonnet. I was seeing so <laughs> many, just so many men. And it was really the men that were killing me. They were talking about women's bodies. They were talking about reproductive rights. And they were talking about abortion. They were talking about all these topics. And they we're just grandstanding. I could see they don't care about this. They don't really know about it. They can't speak intelligently about it. They're just trying to say whatever they think will get them the right votes. And I was just really irritated. So I'm like, I'm going to publish this. And I think I'll try a Twitter thread, which I had never written one before. And it's really long. So I write this thread and it's really long. It's 63 tweets, which you know is just like not okay. That's horrible for a Twitter thread. You really shouldn't go past like, you know, five or six. And here I run this, this, this long thread. And my main concern upon publishing it was how fast can I delete it? <laughs> not, not if people get mad at me. I wasn't worried about that because I was like, I don't know if anyone will see it. But I was worried that I'd have this huge thread out there and that no one would see it. And I would just be so embarrassed that I put myself out there and just saw crickets. And I was like, how fast can I delete 63 tweets and was calculating that in my head. But then the thread went viral just immediately. I, it took off immediately. And the first person I heard from, I'm a religious, I'm a Mormon. And the first person I heard from was a text from the bishop of our congregation. who's like the, the leader of the congregation saying, this is amazing. You could build a whole law career out of this. And he was so excited about it. And that made me realize, oh, this is appealing to religious people. It's appealing to non-religious people. It's appealing to people across the political spectrum. And I, 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 I started to get an inkling, oh, this is going to have a, a life of its own. And it has. So that Twitter thread came out September 2018. So that's four years ago because we're on September 1st today. And there has not been a single day since then where it hasn't been retweeted, argued with, people want to debate me, not a single day. And 
if abortion is in the news, it will go viral again and again and again. So it's actually been a big part of my life the last four years. <laughs> four years old and it still lives on? Four years old. Still lives on. It's still super active. And sometimes I'll mute it when I'm a little tired. But then other times people really want to discuss it with me. It's, it's got ideas that are new to people. And so this book I wrote is not the thread, but the thread inspired the book. And they certainly have plenty in common. But I got to use these four years of debating the thread, of arguing, of refining the ideas in the thread. And I hope really clarify things and make them better and add where I need to add. And, and I'm, I'm really happy with the book and I'm really excited to see the reception <laughs> that it gets. It's, it's coming out soon and I'm certainly nervous, but excited. I think that it is one of the best book titles in the history of man. <laughs> I mean, ejaculate responsibly. You can't see a book called Ejaculate Responsibly and not have a reaction to that. I have to say, did you think of it? It really comes straight from that thread where I introduced the term irresponsible ejaculation and responsible ejaculation. I introduced this term and it proved to be such a, I mean, I'm just so glad I did. It's such a funny word. It's the least sexy way to talk about sex using the word ejaculate. Like it's just like, <laughs> it's the opposite of sexy. I don't know. It's, it's a little scientific. It's a little technical. No one uses it. It's sort of funny to say it's perfect. And you know, I'm this middle-aged mom. No one wants to hear about sex from me. I, I, I get it. And so to be able to just talk about it in terms of ejaculation, it just puts some separation between anything that might be titillating and this discussion, which is so great. So I'm really, really happy with it. It catches people off guard. <laughs> it's hard to ignore. <laughs> and it really says what I wanted to say. Responsible ejaculations is... I mean, and, I feel like I have a strong argument that that can really affect change. And, and what's going to happen when your kids go to school and your kids' friends are saying, oh, you're the ejaculate responsibly kid, huh? I got to say, it's already happened. So my kids are older. My oldest was 20 when they first wrote the thread. So 24 now. So they've been dealing with this for a while, right? And we've had these discussions at home. We've read the book together. They know all this stuff. But yeah, in the book, in the acknowledgments, I'm thanking my family. I'm thanking my husband. And I do write about the, the kids and just say, hey, you don't get to pick your parents. And you don't know that, you're, that your mom is going to start talking about you know, responsible ejaculation on very public forums and, and what that's going to mean. And my kids have been so cool and patient about it. It's hilarious, though, because sometimes strangers or even like relatives that maybe are too timid to come and argue with me about it or discuss it with me, they'll try and argue with my kids about it. And I just want to go, that's inappropriate. Just come find me. My kids did not write this. They do not have to defend this. But I, I know that's life with an online parent. And all of this has happened before the book has come out. Imagine oh, when it's a right. New York Times bestseller and it's covering oh, the earth. Knock on wood. I really do hope it's so widely read. I know you mentioned you read it last night, and I really tried so hard to make it like just a quick, enjoyable read. I just wanted it to be like anyone could sit down and read this. I want coaches to give it to their athletes in high school. I want sororities and fraternities to have copies around, and I want parents to discuss it with their kids. I really do hope it's widely, widely read, and I tried to make it so accessible. I use language that I use with my own children. So anyone can just sit and read it really quickly and understand what's happening. And I do hope it's widely read. So thanks for saying that. 
I promise you that I will have a discussion about this topic with my sons. I promise you. <laughs> and I just want you to know that I had a vasectomy. And you're right. It's not that hard. It's not that painful. I mean, all you need is really a bag of frozen peas. And so, as opposed to tubal ligation or IUD, as you point out in the book. I wonder, what do you think Justice Roberts would say to you if you asked him? So, what are your ideas to reduce unprotected sex, Justice? I mean, I think the question catches people so off guard. When you switch it to that and you, and you talk about, hey, what are we doing about irresponsible ejaculations here? What, what are we doing about the men who are causing unwanted pregnancies? And, you know, as a society, we just have never thought about it this way. And I'm talking about men haven't thought about it this way, but either have women. None of us have thought about it this way. The way my husband talks about it, he was probably my first convert to these ideas. I'm not sure <laughs> what to call it. And We've been married 27 years now. I had used every kind of birth control. They worked, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing. I got to choose when I have babies and I've had a lot of babies. So that was really wonderful for me to get to choose when that happened. But I really hated how my body felt and worked when I was on birth control. And again, tried every form available to me. And just it had never really occurred to us that my husband could be taking on more of this burden. It was just a given that I would do this. This is my body. I'm trying to prevent pregnancy. So I'm in charge of this. And I think we just are getting it so wrong. This burden can be shared among couples and among partners and should be shared. And so if I asked justice, I've asked any of the justices, I think it would throw them off so much because we just don't think of it that way. And I think for some men who maybe haven't had vasectomies, they can feel some guilt as they suddenly look back and go, oh, well, so my partner, maybe my wife, my girlfriend, she's been experiencing side effects from birth control, or maybe she doesn't have side effects, but even just the hassle of birth control, the doctor's appointments and prescription renewals and having to get off work to go to those appointments, you know, all that kind of stuff, get a babysitter. She's been dealing with all of that. And I've never even had to think of it, but I as man <laughs> benefit as much as she does. And so some people really, this is hard for them to hear because then they're looking back at their sexual history and wondering, have they been ejaculating irresponsibly? But then other men really get it and, and embrace it and are, are thinking more forward and are really thinking about how can I be more responsible in my future sexual encounters and making an appointment for a vasectomy or figuring out which condoms they like best so that they don't fuss about it or complain about it. So it's been really interesting to see the reactions from people and men in particular. And I think Justice Roberts, he'd have one of those two reactions where he gets it or he all of a sudden feels guilty and doesn't want to hear it. You know what I would guess his reaction would be. But anyway. Well, so. yeah. I think your book points out fundamentally men all they have to do is wear a condom or get a vasectomy 
A condom is really trivial. And a vasectomy is obviously an operation, but it is also a rather trivial operation that can be very effectively reversed. <laughs> so just rationally, what is the big deal? Why don't they do that? Gaia, I think I got to pose that question to you <laughs> because I'm not a man. I wonder the exact same thing. And honestly, I really like people. I really think the best of people. So I don't think men are out there trying to be jerks about this. It's just, we don't teach them about this and we don't teach women to expect this of men. And I think it's as much a cultural thing as anything else. Like, I, I don't think there's evil intention about this. We just don't talk about it. And we don't introduce these ideas. And that's why I so desperately want this book to be read. One, I think it really does shift the conversation away from trying to control women and control women's bodies and shift it to something much more practical, which is preventing unwanted pregnancies. But it also really relieves a burden from women or potentially relieves a burden from women. Women really have this heavy thing on our shoulders from the moment we become sexually active of every sexual encounter, no matter how much we love and trust our partner, we're having to think, am I going to get pregnant? Is my birth control going to work? If it doesn't work, what do I do then? What are my options? Will I want to have this baby? Can I afford to have this baby? Do I have support? Is it legal to get an abortion where I live? Basically, that scenario has to go through our minds every single time we have sex. And to be able to have someone carry some of that burden is huge. It's huge. And there's lots of ways men can carry. You know, you've talked about condoms. You've talked about vasectomies. Those are the main ways I propose in the book. But there's also things like, this is your girlfriend. Are you helping her defray the costs of this? Do you know what kind of side effects she has? Is there anything you're doing to help her with that? There, there's all sorts of ways that we can help our partners carry the burden of birth control or pregnancy prevention together. It doesn't have to be all on women. I hope that just like you can see so clearly that condoms and vasectomies are both really great options and they should just be a given. They should just be a given for all men that men just know that's part of life, that they're going to use condoms and probably eventually get a vasectomy. And that's great. They don't need to worry about that. That's just awesome. In the same way that women assume that we'll use birth control, that that's going to be part of our life. Imagine you said that to, I don't know, 49 Republican senators and said, <laughs> listen, guys, if you really want to prevent abortions because of your religious convictions and your pro-life, etc., why don't you just convince men to get vasectomies and use condoms? What do you think they would say as, you know, oh, I never thought of that. Let's do it or... Yeah, but no. an orgasm is just not as good if you have a vasectomy or a condom on or like what what would they what would they respond to that with? I believe they would immediately try and deflect it toward women and go, "Well, women just need to keep their legs closed." That is the reaction we get constantly, constantly from men who claim to be anti-abortion or claim to care about reducing abortions. And again, I debate this constantly with men who consider themselves to be pro-life. And I'll present some of these ideas and say, well, what are you doing? Are you talking to men about wearing condoms? Are you talking to men about ejaculating responsibly? And every time their response is, well, women just need to do this or women just need to do that. And they only seem to be interested in reducing abortion if the tasks to get there fall on women. It really comes down to 
wanting to control women. They don't see it that way. They don't see that's what it's doing. But if you give them other options, if you say, we actually know how to reduce abortion, here's a bunch of steps we can do. They're not interested. They're only interested if the steps are they get to yell at women to not have abortions. That seems to be the main interest and control when women are having sex or who they're having sex with. And I don't believe these men, these 49 Republican senators, I don't believe they actually care about abortion. And that probably sounds bold to some people, but if they did, if they actually cared, again, we know how to reduce abortion. We've done it. So these men, these Republican men that claim to be so anti-abortion, they want to get rid of abortion. I don't believe them. We know what works. And we've seen things in a few different states. In the book, I mentioned a program that happened in Colorado, where they introduced free, easily accessible birth control. And this wasn't just condoms. This was the pill. This was IUDs. This was all the types of birth control. Made it free, made it really easy to access. And they saw unwanted pregnancies and therefore abortions that are due to unwanted pregnancies go down by 50%. And they didn't even run the program that long. Had they run it more and made people more aware of it, I'm sure they could have seen even more success. And that program was eventually shut down in in Colorado by Republican politicians. So the idea that, that these politicians, these 49 Republican men are interested in reducing abortion is really hard for me to believe. Again, I think it's just politicians grandstanding, trying to say what they think will get voters. How many of these men have paid for abortions themselves? Who knows? I'm, I'm sure someone's looking into that. And I'm fine if, if they impregnate someone and that one wants to have an abortion. So that's fine with me. I don't mind that they've done that. But the hypocrisy is difficult, I think, to be patient with. And I just don't think they care. I think it's all talk. If they cared, there are real things they could do. If they cared, they would be thinking about some of these things that I talk about in the book. They'd be thinking about, well, what's men's role in this? Because women don't just magically get pregnant. Women are impregnated. And who's doing that impregnating? What kind of consequence are they facing? What kind of accountability or responsibility do they have to face? And in many cases, it's nothing. And in, in most cases, it's nothing. How would you allocate responsibility for preventing unwanted pregnancies? It's a great question. And I don't know if this is a satisfying answer for you, but this is how I think of it. Women are 100% responsible for their own bodies and their own bodily fluids. And men are 100% responsible for their own bodies and their own bodily fluids, which would include sperm and semen. And I think if both people are taking care of their own bodies or being responsible for their own bodies and not expecting the other person to do that for them, that's the ideal. So the way it works right now is women are expected to be responsible for their own bodies and for men's bodies. And they might do that because men might expect them to be taking birth control so that the men don't have to worry about it or think about it. They might expect the woman to demand a condom. And if she doesn't, the man doesn't bring it up, hopes she doesn't mention it. And again, so it's expecting her to be responsible for her own body and then for his actions as well. If she's in charge of demanding him to use a condom and maybe providing that condom, that's her having to be responsible for his actions and her own. And obviously that's not ideal. And so what I'm trying to propose is, hey, women are already doing a lot of this work. What if men stepped up and did a lot of this work for their own bodies? And how many fewer unwanted pregnancies would we see if that happened? And I think it would be drastically fewer. I think virtually we'd eliminate them if men were taking pregnancy prevention work as seriously as women 
have been expected to do. That's a mouthful. Let's just, for the men who are listening, let's just explain how an IUD works. Because sure. I think that many men think you just go in, they pop it in, and you know, you're out. And it's that simple. So as an IUD wearer myself, I'm not currently, but have been before, I'm the most familiar with the implantation and the extraction of the IUD. And it's a pretty intense process. Basically, they have to take either it's this little copper, I want to say it almost looks like a, an anchor. I don't Anyway, it's this little copper anchor or a little plastic anchor that has hormones in it. The copper one doesn't have hormones. The plastic one does. And so there's two different, you have these two different options and they have to put this in your uterus. And some women report that it's not that painful and they, they seem to endure it just with some deep breathing. But other women report that having an IUD put in is the most pain they've ever felt, even if they've had babies or something else where they, they'll faint or it will be, they're screaming, it'll come in waves and last for hours or days. And then to remove it, it's a similar process. The IUD has a couple of little strings and basically the doctor's going to tug on these strings to extract it from your uterus. It is, I mean, these are your most sensitive parts. You're on your back, your legs are in stirrups. There's just no, nothing fun about this. There's nothing pleasant. These are cold metal medical tools interacting with your most sensitive parts and things can go wrong. When my IUD was being removed, the strings dissolved. They could, they're pulling the strings and the strings are like dissolving. So they have to use another tool to go in and try and, I couldn't see what the tool they were using. I imagined it like some type of tweezer where they're trying to extract it that way. I found it incredibly painful. I did not pass out, but found it incredibly painful. And a fascinating thing about it is women aren't offered pain medication when they have an IUD um, inserted or removed. It's just not standard at all. If you are offered something, it's probably just going to be an Advil, maybe two. And that's not typical. That would be like unusual if you were even offered that. Women that have asked for something or have been offered something, maybe a topical something, apparently it doesn't work that well. Apparently the only thing that can really guarantee knocking out the pain is if they put you under like a full anesthesia. And that's dangerous in its own right. So I can see why that didn't necessarily happen. Are you willing to risk that this will not hurt you too much? Are you willing to risk having anesthesia and being put under? It's really a problem. It's, I mean, it's, and there's just this assumption women will just deal with the pain and they do. We have, I did. Lots of women do, thousands and thousands of women do. But it's interesting, of course, because there's a comparable procedure, and I don't know that there is, but if there was one, it would probably be a vasectomy. And I have heard some doctors compare them. And of course, a vasectomy is never performed without pain medication. They, that would be considered super cruel. No one would ever do that. And yet for women, it's performed every day. There are women, hundreds, thousands of women every day having this procedure and with no pain medication and just hoping it won't hurt them too much. I mean, they're, they're really told it's just going to be a pinch. And yet it's not, it's much more than a pinch. And again, for some women, so painful that they're, they're passing out on the table. I don't know if that's where you wanted me to go with that guy. That got heavy fast. <laughs> I would dare say that if a vasectomy involved as much pain and risk as a IUD implantation, 
men would get general anesthetics for vasectomies. And they would take a week off. I'm sure. I have no doubt they would be a full medical procedure in a hospital where they, yeah, take a week off and where women are just expected to drive home after and go about their day. It's fascinating. And and what I like to point out is that, remember, men are 50 times more fertile than women. Women are are fertile 12 to 24 hours. Their egg is fertile 12 to 24 hours in a month. That doesn't mean they should only avoid pregnancy that day because sperm can live longer. There's a whole fertile window for sperm where you have to avoid sex for seven days if you're trying to do it that way. But anyway, women have this 12 to 24 time period of egg fertility in a month, and they are doing pregnancy prevention work every day for this tiny amount of fertility. So if they're taking the pill, which is one of the most common forms or any kind of hormonal birth control, which are again, the most common forms for uh, birth control for women, they're ingesting a hormone every single day. They're ingesting that hormone or they had the shot. And so it's slowly being released into their body over time. And they're doing that whether they're having sex or not. If their partner is out of town or unavailable or whatever, and they, they can't have sex for a week, for a month, they're still having to ingest this because if you stop, it it doesn't just immediately start working the next day. If you stop the pill and then start it a week later, it's not even going to be effective probably for another week. It's usually up to seven days before it's effective again. So the women just, hey, if I might have sex this week, I need to keep taking this pill. So they're handling their fertility. They're managing their fertility. Women are 100% of the time for 3% of that time being fertile. It's super bizarre that we've put it entirely on women where men have this opposite thing where men are always fertile. They're fertile every day, all day for their whole life from puberty till death. And instead of focusing on that, which seems like, hey, here's this ever present fertility. Maybe we should like really think about that and how to cope with that. Instead, we spend all this time and energy trying to figure out this 24-hour period where women are going to be fertile. And it turns out it's highly unpredictable. They've done so many studies on this. And even if you have a regular 28-day cycle, even if you seem to be as regular as a clock, the studies are really clear that even with people that have regular cycles, there's a good 10-day window where you could ovulate any time in those 10 days. It's just not predictable. It's not a regular thing. So it's super bizarre that we've spent all our time and energy, 90% of the $8 billion birth control industry is focused on women's fertility and products for women. And over on the other side, we have 100% fertility happening for men every day, all day long. And we've got basically nothing focused on them. Condoms have been around forever. Vasectomies, I guess, are the newest thing we've done. They've made some attempts at male birth control, a shot or a pill, but nothing that's been approved. So in my mind, we're laser focused on the wrong thing. We should be thinking about this ever-present men's fertility and not so focused on women's fertility, which is so unpredictable and difficult. Up next on Remarkable People. But I can also say I would be delighted to see unwanted pregnancies go down, even though I'm pro-choice and even though I want abortions to remain available. And the reason I would want to see unwanted pregnancies go down is because I've been pregnant and I've been pregnant lots of times. And I think pregnancy is the hardest thing I've ever done for sure. And certainly the hardest physical thing I've ever done.
Want to know when there's a new episode of Remarkable People? Simply text 831-609-0628 if you live in the U.S. or Canada. You're listening to Remarkable People with Guy Kawasaki. You would think by 2022 we would have a male birth control pill, right? Right. And I really even think I would have thought there was some form of, I want to call it like an instant vasectomy, where they're basically putting on a little clamp, removing a little clamp. This doesn't seem like rocket science to me. When I see what they're doing, you know, they put in tiny balloons and veins. There's so many little tiny things they're doing. I'm like, we can't block this with a balloon or a clip or something and then unblock it when someone's ready to conceive. It just seems like this should be solved by now. But I feel we focus so little time, money, and energy on that. And instead, again, our focus, what's yet another product, another hormonal product, another product we can try and control women's fertility with. And it's very bizarre. I'd love to see a big shift there. I think it would make much more sense if we were focused on men's fertility and it feels like there would be better options, again, because it's so consistent versus so unpredictable. It just feels like you could do something mechanically that doesn't work for women. Again, some sort of clip or something. So who knows? I just don't think we've invested in that, time, energy, or money. Can you possibly imagine a world where, as a teenager or a young man, you get a vasectomy and then when you're really ready to have kids, you reverse it. Do you know anybody who would do that? I, no, I, I don't. But And I don't. And I don't think we're there yet. Vasectomies are highly reversible. Stanford's getting 95% reversal rates, even if vasectomy was 20 years ago. It doesn't matter how long ago it was. So things are improving. But there aren't that many really good vasectomy reversal doctors in the country. Like we're, we're just not even close to that. We're just not there. There would have to be a system that was so reliable. It would have to be like, here's this 15-minute procedure, and it's only 15 minutes to reverse it, and you can get it done whenever, and we're just not there. Maybe it's some nanobot technology that's going to happen. Who knows? But no, right now, with the current vasectomies, even with the, the improving success rates of reversals, no. I can't imagine anyone saying, I'm sending my teen teenager in. I have teenage sons. I'm not... No, I just think people wouldn't want to mess with that. The other thing, though, if there is a procedure that comes or a new kind of vasectomy that is an improvement and is more reliable, if you compare that with banking sperm, then I actually do think people would be really willing to look at that. And I don't think it would start with teenagers. I think it would probably be men in their 20s, men in their 30s that are very interested in this, that do not want to become fathers yet, do not want that responsibility and don't want to risk that. And they go, I'm going to bank my sperm. It's going to be frozen. It's going to be sitting there as a backup. And then I'm going to get this new procedure that's super easy and super reversible. And I can see that happening. I just don't think we're there yet on vasectomies. And maybe we could be, again, if this is where we'd put our time and energy, but we haven't. So no, we're not there. It would be the hypocrisy of, don't tell me what to do with my body. I don't want to get a vaccine, <laughs> but... We can tell women what to do with their body. The hypocrisy there and the double standard is just unbelievable to me, but I digress. So how can we shift the focus from women to men? So much of it is the conversations we're having, what we're talking about. What's the dialogue happening across the country? And 
I know it's ambitious to say so, but I really want this book to start affecting those conversations. And I know that the ideas in the book already have. I see signs at protests talking about responsible ejaculation and about being really pro-vasectomy and some of this stuff that really originated with this thread that has gone viral and viral so many times over these last four years. So I know it's already affected a lot of people and affected the conversation, but I want that times a thousand. I really want these ideas to be so commonplace that no one thinks they're new or interesting anymore. That it's just like, yeah, we expect men to use condoms. It's just a given that the idea that someone would ask, should I use a condom would be as bizarre as someone saying, should I wear a seatbelt? Of course, you're going to wear a seatbelt. If you get in the car, you're going to put on a seatbelt. That was a question we had to debate for like 30 seconds and then it was over and now we wear seatbelts. And we need to get there with condoms. We need to get there with condoms and we need to get there to probably a little lesser extent, but with vasectomies. If you don't want to become a father and you are sexually active, consider a vasectomy. And maybe we need more and better trained vasectomy doctors. We'd have to look at the data on that to see if everyone that wanted a vasectomy, can they get them? I do know that since Roe v. Wade was turned over, there have been more requests for vasectomies. So that's heartening news. That's wonderful news. But I think we need to be talking about this. Again, condoms need to be so commonplace. And then the other thing that I think is a a huge factor is just fact-based sex ed. And in our country, it's sex ed depends on the state. So there are 11 states where there's no sex ed mandated at all. In some states, you can only tell very specific information, like it might be only abstinence-based sex ed. Now, other states might have a program that feels fact-based, but maybe it's only happening one year. And children need age-appropriate, I want to be clear, age-appropriate sex ed throughout K through 12. It just needs to be a, a standard part of, of life. And I know there would be resistance there. I come from a religious community. I get that people feel like, oh, I don't want people talking about this, but it needs to be talked about in the same way we talk about the effects of smoking, the way we talk about, I'll throw seatbelts out there again, any of these basic things that affect people's safety. It just needs to be talked about so straightforwardly and it can be done without putting morality on it, or I think it can be done in a way that could be palatable to religious communities. But we know that it works. And again, I'm basing that on what we've seen happen in the Netherlands, which has a very different approach to sex ed and really does this fact-based sex ed that I'm talking about. And they see a much, much smaller amount of teen pregnancy and unwanted pregnancy than we see in the U.S. And it's simply from education. And so if we have that approach with kids and we're really teaching kids fact-based education, how to prevent pregnancies, what the options are, really driving home the idea that sperm cause pregnancy. You've got to keep these sperm away from an egg. And we don't know when the eggs are fertile. So you've just got to be careful every time. If we're really driving that home and we're making condoms, again, making condoms a given, just like a non-question, everyone keeps condoms around. It's super easy. It's not a big deal. And then we're providing free birth control programs. The one I mentioned in Colorado, if we have these prongs, we're like, we know these things work. We could see unwanted pregnancies disappear. And I want to be clear, I'm actually very pro-legal abortion. I am very pro-choice. If a woman needs an abortion, I support her and want her to be able to get that whenever she needs that. But I can also say I would be delighted to see unwanted pregnancies go down, even though I'm pro-choice and even though I want abortions to remain available. And the reason I would want to see unwanted pregnancies go down is because 
I've been pregnant and I've been pregnant lots of times. And I think pregnancy is the hardest thing I've ever done for sure. And certainly the hardest physical thing I've ever done. And the first part of the pregnancy for me, and I know for many women is the hardest part. So the idea that like, oh, you're only pregnant for 12 weeks isn't, isn't comforting to me. I would want to be able to remove that from women or make sure she never experienced that if she didn't want to be pregnant. I would be delighted if, if that was gone. Why did you say 12 weeks? 12 weeks is your first trimester. And that's typically when women are the sickest. Second trimester, it's not uncommon to get a little bit better. And then third trimester, often people get sick again. But those first 12 weeks for me, and it's not like a a perfect cutoff date. It might be 11, it might be 13, but 12 weeks is the average. But I was just miserable, just so sick every day and just really miserable. And I think I don't want anyone to experience that unless they are actively and sincerely seeking to have a baby, then super, then definitely go through that if that's what you want to do. But the idea that people just casually have to experience pregnancy that don't want to, I would be delighted if that disappeared, if unwanted pregnancies disappeared. Are there any countries that have embraced condoms and vasectomies the way you think the United States? I've not heard of one. I've not heard of one. I think the myths that we see in the United States around condoms and vasectomies, and the myths being that men are afraid that a vasectomy will change their erections, change their ejaculations, change their just their sexual experience, and the myths around condoms that you can't have enjoyable sex with a condom. These are just these basic myths that are really deeply embedded in our society, and they seem to be fairly worldwide. And that is very anecdotal, what I'm saying, but it's based on watching, again, this thread over the last four years go viral, not just in the United States, but in countries across the world. I've seen it translated in Spanish many times, in German, in Dutch, in Japanese, in Russian. I've seen it in Polish. I've seen it everywhere. And I just think these issues that that we're dealing with are not just American. Men all over the world have been taught to fear. Vasectomies have been taught to avoid condoms. And we need to unteach that. We need to unteach that. Those are really harmful myths. I dare say this has been unlike any other podcast I have done, (laughs) to my delight, actually. I hate to say it, but it's hard to not conclude that men are assholes, but I may not keep that in the final episode recording. Oh, this has been a really fun conversation. I love it. Honestly, I feel like I've been interviewed quite a bit by women, but he might be the first man that's interviewed me about this. And I love it. I love the conversation because... I mean, I'm not a man, so I'm speaking about condoms, but I don't wear condoms. So I love hearing from someone who's had a vasectomy, who's asking these questions. I think it's really powerful, and I'm really glad you did this interview. So thank you, guys. It's great. <laughs> I dare say that when you have other males interview you about your book, it might not go like this. <laughs> it might not. It might and, not. We'll see. Uh, yeah, you let me know. If nothing else, maybe there's a Frozen Peas Association and you can have a partnership with them for vasectomy increases. Oh my gosh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Vasectomy sponsored by the Frozen Pea industry. I love it. Well, also, if you think about it, we're so convinced that we need to prevent our heads from hitting the windshield. Why shouldn't we be convinced that we need to prevent the sperm from hitting the egg? I mean. (laughs) Right. Right. It just, it makes all the sense in the world. And I appreciate you saying your conclusion is all men are assholes, but I really don't conclude that. And I say that sincerely. 
I think women have been taught these same ideas about condoms and birth control and responsibility as men have. We're all taught the same thing. We're all in this society. And so women need to learn a lot of this stuff too. And again, I don't think the men are out here just trying to be jerks and say, I refuse to wear condoms. There are men that do that, I, I realize. But I think a lot of men, it hasn't occurred to them to get a vasectomy. It just hasn't occurred to them or they've never talked to anyone that's had one that can ease their worries. And so- I'm going to just hope that men are, men are, are good. <laughs> I hope you appreciate the irony of this, but I think that you give men more credit than I do. <laughs> Maybe. You know what? I'm, I don't know. I laugh with my husband because we're raising sons and daughters and I find I'm more patient with the sons. And he finds he's more patient with the daughters. So maybe I'm just, maybe I'm more willing to give the opposite sex credit. Gabby, I'm 68. I just don't give a shit anymore. If that offends you and you're a man and you don't listen to my podcast anymore, the sun will still rise. No, I get it. No more Fs to give. I hear you. Hey, and just best of luck with the new cochlear implant. I hope it, uh, I don't know, improves your life. Yeah, let me tell you, a cochlear implant is a lot harder than a vasectomy. Believe me. Yeah. Yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet. You need to let people know. So that's Gabby Blair, evangelist, remarkable evangelist for women's reproductive rights. Let's take the high road, guys. Let's start using condoms and getting vasectomies. It's our responsibility, too. I'm Guy Kawasaki. This is Remarkable People. My thanks to Peg Fitzpatrick, Jeff C., Madison Nismer, Shannon Hernandez, Alexis Nishimura, and Louis Magana. Until next time, use a condom or get a vasectomy. Ejaculate responsibly for crying out loud. Be responsible for your own bodily fluids. Mahalo and aloha. This is Remarkable People.